would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the 6th chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. Seems like we go one week in Jeremiah and then a couple weeks pass and we don't meet and we don't do Jeremiah and then we come back in a couple weeks and then we take another break. Hopefully we'll have something of a sustained um, presence in Jeremiah over the warmer days of uh, the spring and into the summer. But we have made it to the sixth chapter. And um, I want to read this evening uh, verse 16 uh, to the end of the chapter to verse 30. And this is the ground I hope that uh, we can cover uh, this evening. I'm not going to cover everything exhaustively because a lot of it is just the same old, same old of the great distress and disaster that's going to come upon the nation uh, for their sins. And um, though that's important to understand, um, yet it's uh, not a whole lot that's new there. But but the setting is new. Um, The important things that we find in this place um, need to be heard, Um, especially as we've seen so much of God's statements of the certainty of destruction and the inevitability of of destruction, uh, this whole sense that uh, this is a city that must be punished. That's exactly what he says in uh, chapter 6 and verse 6. This is a city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. And you might think at that point, game's over. At that point, nothing more to be said. Except there's still more to be said. Except we're still dealing with a God whose just judgment is a strange work. Mercy is his delight. And there's a reluctance even now, even at this point, to bring judgment. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we see something of the greatness of the heart of God in the fact that even at this late date, this late point in the prophecy, even though it's early on in the book, yet we've seen so much of the inevitability of judgment. And we know judgment inevitably did come. It came in the form of the Babylonian invasion in uh, 584, 85 uh, BC. Um, But yet, even at this point, God still says things like we find in verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Even now, an invitation is given to find rest, to find in the Lord um, your light and your salvation, your fullness, your sufficiency. Sabbath rests for your souls in the presence of the living God. But they said, we will not walk in it. That is if God doesn't still give up. He says, I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they say, we will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will lay before this people 
stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend, shall perish. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from far the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us as pain, a pain as of a woman in labor. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. So the prophecy began with God saying, stand by the roads and look. Look for those that can tell you about the ancient paths. Look for somebody that's going to tell you how to get back in a good way, in a right way, how to find rest for your souls. But now, as they rebel and will not hear God's word, now don't go out to those roads. Now it's not safe. Now it's not safe. The enemy armies have come. Go not out into the field, nor walk on the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Then there seems to be a word that is directed to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of those watchmen that were spoken of earlier. He still has a function to perform in ministry to the nation, giving them God's word. And so God says, I've made you, directing this to Jeremiah, a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. It's not a story with a happy ending. But it's a story in which wisdom can be learned. It's a story through which we can come to understand a little better the ways of God with men. Not to understand them fully and completely, but at least to have some sense of how God works and operates among a people in covenant with him who simply have no ears to hear his word, no desire to do his will, have gone off into apostasy, they've gone off into idolatry. God has spoken to the issue of the judgment that will come upon them, the disaster that will befall them, the Babylonian invasion is going to come. And as you read on more and more in the book, you see that the end is not going to be averted. The judgment is not going to be further delayed. It's going to fall. It is going to come. And yet there is still that note of a reluctant God who doesn't bring judgment upon his people willingly. He 
He doesn't afflict them out of his heart, desiring to see that pain would be administered to them. He's afflicted in all of their afflictions, and he has no desire to be doing what he must do. But oppression is real. Injustice is real. And if God turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to all of the evil that's being done in his own city, this corrupt city, this city that no longer is concerned for righteousness, no longer concerned to do his will, who engage in religious practices that they think is somehow going to compensate for the fact that they're evildoers, um, if God doesn't judge them, well, they'll just continue on. They'll never learn anything. The people will never learn righteousness. Again, judgment is a strange work, and yet sometimes it's an effective work. Seventy years in captivity in Babylon did tend to cause a people to learn at least what not to do, to put away their idolatries, to put away their apostasies, to turn back, at least in form, to the living and true God to be concerned that Yahweh would be their God and the Babylonian gods they would not worship. We have the Daniels, we have the Ezekiels, we have the chastisement that the people endured for those 70 years so that when they returned to the land um, they weren't doing the same things that they did prior. Again, the problem of the post-exile people wasn't the problems of the people before the exile. Before the exile it was idolatry. Before the exile, it was apostasy. Idolatry and apostasy was not what happened in the days of Jesus or in the days of post-exile. The people weren't worshipping other gods. It's just they weren't worshipping the true God out of genuine heart. Love and sincerity. Everything was externalized. Everything was made in an empty form. Um, the people tithe religiously their mint and anise and cumin and as Jesus said they overlooked the weightier matters of the law it was more a heart problem than a problem of actual apostasy so don't say the Babylonian captivity accomplished nothing it did accomplish the people of Israel in a certain fashion learning the ways of God at least learning what not to do and so that when they returned to the land at least many of them did return to the Lord They returned to the worship of the true and the living God. And from that point forward, they ceased having a religion that entertained other gods. They were committed to monotheism. They were committed to the worship of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. But this is still pre-exile. The disaster has not yet fallen. The people have not yet seen the invasion of the Babylonians. And God still has a heart for them. And so, one more time, he gives words of encouragement to seek out something. Remember back in chapter 5, they were to go through the city and they were to seek out, remember what they were to seek out in chapter 5? An honest man. A righteous man. Go look for a righteous man. In a real sense, like, God diverted the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, or he said he would, if you could find ten righteous people in the city, I think down to five righteous people in the city. So just one righteous man, he says, would have averted the judgment, but there weren't righteous men. There weren't righteous people to be found. You could search high and low and maybe find one, but really there aren't many in the city. And now there's a call to go out again. 
Let's go on a search. Let's go find uh, information that's needed. Go, go out and not so much now in the city. Now go out of the city. Go stand by the roads. And be on the lookout. Ask around. Does anybody remember the old days? Does anyone remember the days when your fathers or your grandfathers worshipped Yahweh? When there wasn't this wholesale apostasy that went on? That the law meant something? That the word of God had hold upon people's hearts? When there wasn't wholesale oppression and there wasn't wholesale violence going on in the city? Ask about this. Look for it. Ask for the ancient paths for where the good way is and walk in it. And again, I don't think Jeremiah is just speaking this to himself. I mean, he's speaking this to the people. You don't have to be caught up, at least in the negative aspects of this judgment that's going to come. Instead of facing the Babylonian invasion without the peace of the presence of God in the midst of the onslaught that you will have the presence of God you will know the good way you will walk in it it's a way that you walk with God and God walks with you and you know the comforts of his presence and you know the reality of the goodness of his words and you know that ultimately there are promises for the future that's what the good way is the good way is the way of instruction it's the way of learning the law of the Lord it's the way of receiving his promises it's the way of knowing his will and so in knowing his promises, knowing his will, you're able then to walk in it. You're able to hear what God said to people like Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Walk as in my sight and you will know rest for your souls, even in the midst of the chaos, even in the midst of the coming calamity. There were believers that knew God's presence in the midst of the coming storm, in the midst of the violence that would come. You know, that's true whenever disaster comes. You have those who know God in the midst of it. They may have lost houses. They may have lost loved ones. They may have lost so very, very, very much. But they cannot take from us the presence of the living God. They cannot take from us the promises of the living God. They cannot take from us the reality that ultimately it is well with our souls. We will receive the blessings that God has has promised to his children and that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. We can know affliction and tribulation and trial and trouble as believers and face it with God's presence with us being the strength and the help and the comfort and the rest for our souls. That's a great offer, isn't it? I take that offer. Let's go out and learn. Let's find some people that know God. Let's find some people that remember the ancient paths. Let's go find some people that um, know about the good way. And let's learn that we might be prepared for the coming storm. But the people say, What? Forget it. We don't need it. That's okay. We're all right. You go door to door, knocking on people's doors, trying to tell them about the gospel. They'll say, "Oh, I don't. I'm okay. I'm. I'm okay." <laughs> the response is, "No, nah, whatever you're selling, I don't need it. I don't need it." Well, that's what these people are saying. Who needs God? 
Who needs the old paths? Who needs the good way? We're all right. In our injustice, in our oppression, we've grown accustomed to it. We've grown accustomed to your face. We've grown accustomed to the face of evil. And my wife knows that was a little bit of my fair lady. <laughs> I've grown accustomed to your face. The face of evil. You've come to love it. You've come to seek it. You've come to pursue it. We will not walk in the good way. We will not search out the ancient paths. We will not be instructed in the ways of the Lord. But if it's not learning the ways of God in a positive way, at least we can learn the warnings of God. Right? I mean, it's good to be warned when trouble's coming. And you see, God's prophet is not only sent to instruct the people in a good way, to encourage them to find the good way, to walk in the ancient paths, to find rest for your souls, but he's also set over the nation as a watchman. He's to cry out when trouble's coming, when danger's coming, when destruction's coming, when enemy, enemy armies are at the gate of the city. I set watchmen over you. That was how the prophets functioned, warning people of the dangers to come. And the watchmen, the prophets, spoke. They said, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Remember the trumpet that is mentioned twice in the preceding context in 6.1? Blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise a signal on beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. Earlier on, I believe it's in chapter 4, you hear about the trumpet again. Uh, Declare in Judah, this is 4 and verse 5. Proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet to the land. Cry loud and say, Assemble, let us go into the fortified cities. Now the fortified cities aren't even a safe place. We saw that earlier in chapter 6. You you have to flee Jerusalem. Because even that's not a safe place. And then the roads you're going to be looking at to find wise people who are going to show you the old paths and the good ways. Later on in chapter 6, you can't even go there. There's no place that's safe. Every place is a place of danger. And the watchmen have been set over the people to warn them that these things are coming. But they said, we will not pay attention. Watchmen? Who needs watchmen? We have prophets that are coming along saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace. We're like them. They have a a more optimistic message. They have a more positive message. We like the power of positive thinking. And they got the power of positive thinking. And Jeremiah, you're you're just a gloomy guy. You're just a gloomy guy talking up all this matter of judgment. We'll listen to the guys we like. Again, Paul warns about those who have itching ears seeking out teachers after their own desires. And that's what people are. They, they love the teachers that tell them what they want to hear. Even they, They're not concerned about what they need to hear. What should they be hearing? Just tell us something we like. Just tell us something that will flatter us. Something that will um, just make us happy. That's, that's what they want in teachers. And God's teachers, God's faithful servants, will not be such teachers. They will be faithful to teach the word of God. They will be watchmen over the people, teachers of the people, drawing their attention to the warnings of God, drawing the people's attention to the instruction of God. And yet the people will not hear. We will not walk in God's ways. We will not pay attention to God's warnings. It's almost as if at that point, 
Where does Jeremiah go? Who do you talk to? People won't hear you. The people you're sent to will not pay attention. They don't want the message that warns them. They don't want the message that instructs them. And so, verse 18, the direction of the prophetic word goes elsewhere. Therefore, hear, O nations. After chapter 25, you have, I'm sorry, chapter, it's later on in the book, you have the oracles against the nations. You have God's word that speaks to the nations. But at this point, uh, again, Jeremiah is not sent to these nations, but it's as if the prophet is declaring a word that would explain to the nations what's happening here. Because you see, when the Babylonians come and they triumph over Judah, you know what they, their interpretation of their victory is? It's our God is stronger than their God. That's what they think. The gods we worship are greater than Israel's gods. That's how they understand it. Their victory is going to be that their gods gave them this victory. And Jeremiah is to address the nations with a different perspective. Again, he's not sent to them, but they need to understand this. Hear, O earth. Hear, O nations. Verse 18. Hear, O earth. Verse 19. And know, O congregation, what will happen to them. So, the congregation probably refers to the faithful ones. If they were left in, in Israel, they will still congregate, perhaps around Jeremiah, the, the books of the world. The, the faithful ones will still come to hear the words that Jeremiah brings. The majority of the people won't. The people of, of Anathoth won't. The people of Jerusalem won't. The kings won't. The prophets won't. But there still will be something of a remnant still. There will be a faithful congregation to hear the word of God. And, and, and they need instruction. Even if, the, even if the greater mass of the people won't hear, the ones who will hear need to hear. And the nations also need to understand what will happen to them? Well, God's going to explain what's happening to them. I'm bringing, I'm bringing disaster upon this people. It's not Moloch. It's not Bel. It's not any of the Babylonian deities that's bringing disaster upon this nation. It's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, that's bringing the curses of the covenant upon this nation is the fruit of their devices it's the reward of their actions it's what they've brought upon themselves because they've not paid attention to my words and as for my law they have rejected it so Jeremiah has an important message to the faithful congregation that will still hear God's word will still be instructed in God's words that even though they've not transgressed in the way the generality of the nation has, yet the curses of the covenant come upon a disobedient nation. God has brought the nation into covenant with him. And the invaders need to understand. We need to understand why this has occurred. It's Yahweh's judgment upon a disobedient nation that has not paid attention to his words and has rejected his laws. And, and you know, you just don't think that means, well, he's just miffed at uh, 
you know, his way is not appreciated. No, it's not that. It's that when his way is not appreciated, people live inhumanely. They live horrifically. They live oppressively. They live with every manner of injustice and degradation that's possibly committed under the sun. They will commit it against other people. Acts of violence, acts of rape, acts of sexual immorality. They're going to give themselves over to their own desires and power is going to rule. Not right, but might is going to rule. That's what happens when we reject God's laws. Some tyrant has to come in and and rule things and then might becomes right and power becomes the order of things. So it's great evil that comes upon a people, especially a people that was supposed to be in covenant with God, who had over them not a not a self-interested tyrant, but a loving, loving Lord, who taught them the right way, the good way, the way of rest and the way of peaceableness and the way of joy and the way of the blessings of his grace and presence and his salvation. And so again, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah has an important task in terms of his own ministry, setting the record straight, declaring exactly why this is happening. It's not Babylonian might, it's Israelite sin. It's the sin of the nation. But the people might say, wait a minute, Jeremiah, you're overestimating or you're overstating the evil. I mean, really. I mean, we still got that temple there, don't we? And we still carry on services at the temple. And chapter 7 is going to be Jeremiah's speech in the temple. You look at 7 and uh, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word. And say, hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Hey, they're worshiping the Lord. Worshiping is, worship is going on. And their confidence and their trust is temples there, services are going on, sacrifices are being given, everything's normal, everything's good. What are you talking about, Jeremiah? Judgment. What are you talking about? Invasion. What are you talking about? Disaster. We're coming with our sacrifices and our offerings. We're bringing frankincense that comes from Sheba. We're bringing it to the temple's treasury. We're bringing sweet cane from a distant land. We're bringing our burnt offerings. And you see what Jeremiah does. He says, this is useless. This is ineffective. This is something that has no real meaning or significance. What used to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba. Again, the God who possesses heaven and earth all things belong to him the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof he needs your frankincense he needs your sweet cane he needs your burnt offerings he's not going to be fed if you don't bring burnt offerings into the temple again if it's not out of the greater sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart none of these things have meaning the 
great sacrifice that God's concerned we bring is first and foremost the broken and the contrite heart. With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He will not despise those sacrifices. It's the sacrifices that are brought in humility before him, in the recognition of who he is, in the face of what we are as creatures made for him. And it's that we give ourselves to him. We give our, our all in all to him. And not just something that's an unusual sacrifice. We give up something for length. Or we give up something for the purposes of the temple and its sanctuary. We've made this great offering and gift to the church. So therefore, um, heaven is secure. There are people that think that. There are mafia dons that think as long as they give money, big money to the church, oh, God's going to show some them some. He's going to be impressed by that. There'll be some slackness of His judgment towards them because, look, they've been uh, they've been so 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 generous. It's not generosity. They're making deals. God says these are offerings that are useless. Therefore, God says. The judgment will come. The stumbling blocks will come. The people will fall. All the peoples, fathers and sons together, neighbors and friends together, they will perish because this invasion he's spoken about before is a reality. It is coming. Verse 22, a people from the north country, a great nation, is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. Again, I'll remind you, Babylon's not named until chapter 20. Or 25, I think. It's 20 or 25. It's, it's later on. We've got a lot of chapters to go and just the, this invading party from the north. And, and of course, Babylon on the map is actually to the east. But you know the source of that, that they come up from the Golan Heights down into the land. And that's just the way, rather than crossing the desert with their men and their material, that was the more effective way to make invasions in the Holy Land. So that's the direction they came. They came from from the north. They came from Galilee, which is why Jesus came from Galilee, because God's invasion of his of, of the world and the person of his son uh, comes from the place where such invasions usually came from. The kingdom of God comes from the north, even as the empire of man also came in judgment. God's gr- grace and salvation comes from the same uh, in the same way. In mean, the same direction, not the same way. Again, the military might, the military power of the Babylonian is, Babylonians is described. They hold on bow and javelin. They're cruel. They have no mercy. Uh, the sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses. They sit in array as a man for battle. It's a united front. They come in array. They come as a devastating force. They come against the daughter of Judah. And there's no resisting them. There's no way to repel them. Our hands fall helpless. Verse 24 says, Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. There's no place you can go where it's safe any longer. Jerusalem was a fortified city, but it's not safe. It too will be invaded. Its walls will be breached. Its city will be burnt. Its temple will be destroyed. 
the warrior, he says, go out to the field to find the the old, the ancient paths and the people that know about the good way. Now go not out into the field. Verse 25 says, no walk on the road. That's not safe. That's not safe. For the enemy has a sword and terror is on every side. What's left to do when such conditions come? All he can do is mourn. All he can do is mourn. All he can do is put on sackcloth, roll in the ashes, make mourning. As for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So the destruction is inevitable. It will come. It will not be avoided, even though, again, God is pictured as reluctant to bring it. Yet, what he can he do? The people will not be instructed. The people will not be warned. The people will not repent. They will not turn. And only a decisive destruction of the nature of the Babylonian captivity will begin to open people's ears to begin to hear the word of the Lord. Then in that foreign place, they'll come to humble themselves. They'll come to recognize all that they've lost, all that they had, and all that they squandered, and all the benefits they refused to understand and take note of, and, and all the privileges they abused. They're going to recognize that. And they'll cry unto the Lord in their, in their distress. And ultimately, they will, a remnant will return. A later generation will be brought back. And that nation will be chastened. And that nation will be humbled. And that nation will be largely rid of at least the overt practices of idolatry and apostasy. But all you, all you can do with regard to this present generation is simply mourn their destiny sudden destruction will come upon us be it even in the face of it Jeremiah still has a work to do he's to teach God's law he's to warn God's people he's to explain what is happening why this has come upon them in ways that bring true understanding it's not that Babylonians' gods were greater, but Israel's sin was greater. But in the midst of his ministry, he's now presented in another way. He's now a tester of metals. He's now an assayer. He's now someone who is going to take metals and see if they're pure. I've made you a tester of metals. Later on, he's going to speak about I, the Lord. I try the heart. I try the reins. I try the mind. I'm the one that sees what's in man. I see the human heart. But here, Jeremiah has a similar task in terms of his word. You see, what, a, what an assayer will do, he'll refine metals and he'll do it with a fire, putting the metals into the fire to burn away its impurities and what it, what, what's left. Did it burn up in the fire? Well, then it was useless. It wasn't metal at all. It wasn't anything of value. Anything that's useful for building a house or making weaponry or doing things that need uh, tried and true metals. And preaching is likened unto that. Chapter 23 explains it. It's not my word like a fire. It burns. It, it, it tests. It tries. It reveals whether the metal is genuine and true. I've made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. 
you'll find out what they're made of. They're stubbornly rebellious. There are people who go about with slanders. They slander God. They slander his prophet. They slander his word. They slander their neighbors. Their mouths are filled with lies. They're bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on. For the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called. For the Lord has rejected them. This work of testing the nation is going to demonstrate the reality of their hopelessness that anything good can come from this nation. They are rejected because they've rejected themselves in their rebellion, in their disobedience, in their stubborn refusal to hear God's word, in their utter addiction to lies and slanders and misrepresentations and blasphemy and all the evils that come out of their mouths, that come out of their acts. And they are utterly rejected of the Lord. Well, we made it through chapter 6, folks, and we're not doing any gospel dances. We're not uh, celebrating. It's not a service of praise this evening. But I think there are some things that are important to learn from what we looked at. Um, I think the first thing that's of importance is the recognition of God's hand in all these things. That ultimately, in spite of all appearances, in spite of the whims of foreign nations, in spite of the power games of leaders and priests and kings and elders, it's ultimately the reality that God controls what happens in the world. God sovereignly reigns. He sovereignly judges. He sovereignly carries out his will and his purposes. And these nations are tools in his hand. Again, what was true in Isaiah of the Assyrians is true of the Babylonians. When God says, Ho Assyria, rod of my anger. You're the instrument in my hand. You don't think so. You think you're just going to go about dominating the nations out of your own power trip. And God says, no. I am the one who's using you for my purposes to send you against the disobedient people. To bring my chastening hand upon them. And then when I've done with my purposes through you, I'm going to judge you. God's in control. God reigns. And I think we see this in terms of what Jeremiah tells the people. This is not to be understood in Babylonian terms. It's not to be understood in terms that uh, the false prophets are saying. This is what reality is. God has set out a prophet to instruct his people in what these things mean. Why these things have occurred. Why these things are happening. He's the voice of God to the people expressing the reality of a God who reigns in Israel and is carrying out his purposes both of judging the wicked and of blessing the righteous and carrying out his purposes of ultimately purifying the nation. 
God's the greatest sayer ultimately. And he's going to rid the nation of its idolaters. He's going to rid the nation of apostasy and bring about a people who will return to the land in some way chastened and purified. Again, you see that happening with regard to the second generation in the wilderness wanderings when the first generation was nothing but stiff of, heart, stiff, stiff of neck and hard of heart. The, un, the uncircumcised heart. They would not hear God's word. And every turn they're rebelling. And every turn they're saying, let's go back to Egypt. That's the people that are going to get going to the land? That's the people that are going to settle the land of Canaan? No, they've demonstrated their unfitness for that. And so they wander 40 years in the wilderness until that generation that wouldn't believe God's words, that wouldn't hear God's voice, perish in the wilderness. And a succeeding generation, more faithful than the former one. I mean, it seems as though the judgments ceased, the death stopped happening once that generation was buried in the wilderness. And under Joshua, they go into the land. Not a perfect people, not a people who will not in the future apostatize at points, but yet much more clearly um, a chastened, humbled, obedient people. So God uses these judgments in ways that have ultimate good at heart. And then I think we also see that God's revealed to be a God of immense compassion, immense compassion, but yet not unlimited. Not unlimited. You can't presume that you just can continue on with hardness of heart and deafness of ear and refusal to hear and unwillingness to learn and unteachableness and just being constantly indifferent and rebellious and going your own way and think there will not be consequences. Oppression and lawlessness must not go on unchecked. God will address the sins of the nation. God will use the proper means to bring about repentance, to bring about change, to bring about renewal. And then we're also given to understand that his judgments are judgments that the world ought to take note of because the world needs to learn righteousness and you can see in his people that if they're not about to be instructed out of his law they will be humbled before his judgments and the world also ought to take notice that the God who judges his people is the God who will judge the world and just to think of the way the the apostle Paul stands in in Mars Hill in Athens and he he addresses um, the nation and who have gone their own way. Uh, God's overlooked all of their ways and rebellion. But now, but now, he commands all men everywhere to repent and that he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the world needs to understand that the God of heaven and earth is a God who 
has entered human history and has brought judgment upon his people that have been just and righteous. And the world needs to take notice of a God who judges in the earth. Again, because judgment is not executed quickly upon the evil of men, Isaiah tells us, the heart of men are fully persuaded in them to do what is evil. And so God demonstrates that he is a God who does bring justice, judgments, that the world would be humbled and the world would come to seek him. And then just the final thing, that even in the worst of times, we need preachers. We need those who will teach the word of God to people. Whether there be few or many who will hear. That's not that's immaterial. The God's word needs to be spoken. God's word needs to be addressed. We need to learn God's word and we need to share God's word with others. Because this world needs watchmen who will warn. And this world needs teachers who will instruct, who will show people the ancient paths, who will tell them about the good way, who will tell them how they might walk in it and find rest for their souls. And this world needs, and the church particularly needs, wise people who can weigh and evaluate and judge and assess, be assayers to determine is there anything of real value? Is it wood, hair, and stubble? Or is, are we building with gold, silver, and precious stones? And I'm speaking about the building of the church. I'm speaking about those whom we admit into church membership, those whom we recognize as God's people. The standard for discipleship today is very, very poor in most places. Anybody can join. <laughs> if you're willing to give, or you're willing to contribute, or you're willing to bring some frankincense from Sheba. Anybody bring some sacrifice from Sheba? Sweet cane from a distant land. Yeah, that'll get you a deaconship in some churches. You'll become a deacon. You bring those sort of offerings. The corruption of the world has entered the church in many, many ways. And sometimes it's shocking. It's shocking to read about all these movements that seemingly were just on the leading edge of Christian Christian revival. I mean, think what's going on with that Hillsong group that was, uh, everybody was talking about it some years ago. And now what everybody's talking about is the utter corruption, the utter hiding over sin of the founders of that group, where there was, I won't even mention the sins that those founders were guilty of that were covered over and the son guilty of other kinds of wickedness and immorality that was covered over of the way in which their leaders had their sins covered over till exposés were made in the newspapers and again and again and again that thing is happening I mean if you put an investigative reporter at work in one, about any denomination today you can realize it's, it's not just Catholic priests that are having Expose, exposure to the re, to the, the, the this wickedness of um, ch- of child um, abuse, sexual abuse of children. If the Boy Scouts weren't exempted from those kind of reports, you know, church groups have haven't wouldn't be and haven't been. And the corruption is great. 
And we need wise assayers. We need people who can make proper judgments, who have discernment, who are able to use God's word as a fire that will evaluate what is real and what is not, what is seemingly gold but is not gold. And be able, again, not to be hypercritical, not to be, you know, overly suspicious. I'm not advocating that, but wise and discerning and holding up high standards of biblical morality that we live and that we teach unto others. The God we worship and serve is a holy God who has holy ways. All of his paths are paths of mercy and of faithfulness and he calls us to be a merciful and a faithful people to find those good ways, to walk in it, to know rest for our souls, but rest for our souls that come with the reality of the genuine working of his grace in our hearts as his people. Well, I've said enough. I hope it's been helpful. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in the word. We're thankful for the prophecy of Jeremiah. Though so much of it is difficult to read and Sometimes it's disheartening working through all of the expressions of the despair that would fall upon sinning Judah. Yet, Lord, ultimately the end of the story is a story of your own work of regenerating grace. It's a story of the way that you revive and renew and you ultimately do make all things new. That you even use chastening and afflictions and troubles in the lives of your people to humble us under your mighty hand that ultimately you would lift us up. And so we're thankful for all that you bring into our lives, not just the things that we can put into the category of the great assets so evident to see, but even those liabilities that are heart disheartening. Yet those two are part of the equation of the way that you work and operate in our lives to teach us your ways and to build us up in faith and and faithfulness. So we're thankful for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the privilege of gathering to consider your word, to glean from the text of Scripture things important to see, important to hear, important to know. So help us to go from this place determined to think upon these things. And we pray that you would give us increasing understanding in them, make us to be wise hearers of your word and wise students of your truth that live the truth and bring forth fruit to your glory as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.